everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire. And all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up, and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am here with the illustrious and incredible Meg Fisher. Uh, For those of you who don't know Meg, the woman has more hard metal hanging on the wall uh, than anybody I know. Um, She's done the Lead Boat Challenge um, and numerous events all over the globe and is really changing paracycling uh, in... I would say the world. So Meg, welcome. Oh, it's a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's I'm great... I'm psyched. It's it's been a long time coming. So I mean, I've been a fan of yours for years. Um I, I think where did we meet? Uh Rebecca's private Idaho yeah. five plus years ago. And then we keep bumping into each other around the country. Yeah, I'll actually, I never, I'll never forget that we were riding, we met at Rebecca's and it was the big day and we were all climbing. Um, We all got brought up to the front line and, and the gun went off and everybody from the back bum rushed us up the front and they just kept trying to push us off the trail. And I remember you, Terry Curley and I just riding as a protected cluster up that climb to get, to get through the shit show. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah, the folks in the back, I mean, that race is so long and Trail Creek smacks you in the face pretty early, but there's so much more out there in the Copper Basin that um, it's humbling. So yeah, it's it's a it's, it's a fun day on the bike. For sure. So Meg, I, I kind of want to, just to kind of start at the beginning, right? You know, you've accomplished so much and I really would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, racing on the velodrome, the transition from being a Paralympian, winning medals, and then jumping into a whole new realm that really didn't have the category or really the openings. You were racing open category. You're racing in just the women's category and you've, you're have you working towards changing that. So I'd like to start at the beginning with racing on the velodrome, if, if, sure. if you don't mind starting there. Sure. Uh, I guess, well, all good stories start with once upon a time, right? Yep. So, um, Let's see, once upon a time, um, I was somebody with uh, two arms, two legs, uh, a relatively sound brain. Um, I was quote unquote, yeah, normal. I was just like most people. And I'd say I still am more like people than I am different, but now I look a lot different. So 20 years ago, I was in a car accident um, that put me in a coma, required some brain surgery and also uh, required the amputation of my left leg. I also only have half of my abdominal muscles. I had a lot go wrong. So I can't even do a sit up. Like if I'm on the ground, I'm a gosh darn turtle. So um, anyway, from there, I I I was told I'd never walk again and um, relied on a wheelchair for mobility. Got paired with a service dog, Betsy the Wonder Dog. Um, she's she's the fairy godmother of the of the fairy tale. She's incredible. She was the best dog in the world. She changed my life. And then um, she helped me find the bike. From there, I found uh, 24-hour mountain bike racing and then Xterra off-road triathlon, where I was the first female challenged athlete to ever do Xterra triathlon. Um, won some hardware there and then went on to, like, I had always wanted to race for Team USA. I think a lot of young athletes, we want to be able to wear the stars and stripes and represent our country, our family, our communities, our friends. Um, and I thought that had left the realm of possibility. It wasn't until, um, like, I didn't understand what para-sport was. Like, I didn't know if I was injured enough or not enough, or if there was space for me, or if I was good enough or whatever, um, lots of questions. And because at coming from able-bodied sport, we, any one of us, no matter where we are, we just have our own perspectives. And so we don't know what we don't know. And from there, I learned that like, oh, parasport is competitive. Parasport does require as much dedication as able-bodied sport. It does, it is every bit as valid and 
worthy of attention and participation and competition and sponsorship and you name it as any other sport because it's just it's 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 an equal sport um para is from the greek prefix meaning alongside so it's parallel to i really like that prefix um fast forward to velodrome racing um, I live in Missoula, Montana. If you look outside right now, it's a balmy 13 degrees. We don't have a velodrome within a day's drive. Actually, Seattle, I guess, eight hours. Um, so yeah, I didn't know about velodrome racing. I just seen seen it on TV and think that's madness. How do people ride around with one gear on a fixed bike with no brakes? That's just kamikaze riding. Um, I got exposed to that through uh, para racing, paracycling, because at first I wouldn't get off my mountain bike and I couldn't earn a position on the national team because I rode my mountain bike too much. And there is no para national cycling team for mountain. It's only road or track or velodrome racing. Um, so I got off, I hung up my mountain bike and I really focused on the road and the road was good to me. I went to the, the London 2012 and 2016 games where I won a gold, two silvers and a bronze over those two, two games. And along the way, I've, I've earned 11 world championships on um, road, road racing, as well as time trialing. Time trialing is probably my specialty. I really just, I like it. And that really bleeds over well into pursuiting on the track. It's just how much can you suffer? And I like it. I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, after 2016 games, I retired. Um and I think a lot of us, if you're listening to this podcast, we all kind of have things that we, you know, enjoy. We enjoy to be challenged, um, whether I guess like in your own career as a chef, I mean, you challenge yourself to try new things and but you might kind of have your niche that you really like or you fall back on things that feel good and there's a comfort zone. Um, for me as an athlete, like I was a college tennis player, actually with two legs, um, kind of Ali Tetrick style. I'm still, if Ali, if you listen to this, I'd still like to meet you on the tennis court one of these days. Um, but I, um, I, my legs my, and my body couldn't do what my comfort zone was. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I didn't have those skills anymore, those abilities. And the bike became that tool. Like I, I couldn't, like I go back to Betsy, the wonder dog, um, my service dog. I couldn't walk her enough. I couldn't run with her. I couldn't do things with her. Yes. She could pull me a wheelchair. She could pick up things I dropped, but she's a gosh darn dog. And you want to play with your dog. Right. Um, so I learned, I saw people mountain biking with their dogs and I thought, well, maybe I can do that. And I wanted to bike with people, but I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't want to slow anyone down. I mean, Every conversation before a group ride is like, so is this a social pace? And what is your social pace? And are you going to go how fast and how hard and how far and how much elevation? You know, those those conversations that we all kind of talk in circles. But Betsy, she didn't care. She just wanted to hang out with me. If we stopped, we stopped. If we kept going, we kept going. And my goal was to tire my dog out. And it turns out if you could tire out a two, year, two three-year-old border collie healer, like you gained some fitness. Um, I mean, so she. I mean, it's. I, I think it's a really interesting thing that you're saying. I mean, it's like there's that comfort zone that you have, but also it's like how does that comfort zone fit in with everybody around you, and yeah. how do you get through that barrier of yourself putting barriers in front of you, in yeah. around the people that want to do things with you you just don't recognize that they want to do things with you right i think that's a really really important thing that you're saying because whether you're you know a para-athlete or you're just a newcomer to show up people want you to be there people want you to come out and play and i think it's setting up those own walls for yourself to climb over is probably the hardest thing to change in yourself oh it's 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 wild what we um we tell ourselves we can't do it's absolutely staggering or what we shouldn't do i hate the subjunctive tense i hate should coulds woulds because they talk about things that have never happened may never happen they are just great places for guilt and um you know i should have done this i shouldn't have done that oh i could have done that or man i I blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. Just, it's a vicious cycle. Um, like 
I, yeah. So many people tell me what I could or couldn't do or what I should or shouldn't expect to be able to do. And I've blown away every one of those expectations that other people put on me as well as myself. Like I did my first triathlon 11 months after losing my leg the second time. Yes. I've had two amputation surgeries because I'm so lucky. Um, but you know, I didn't think I could do a triathlon, even when I had two legs. Um, and to clarify your answer, to clarify for everybody, Meg, your amputation, <laughs> it's uh, below the knee or is it? At, uh, yes. Okay. It's below the knee. And since this is a culinary podcast, I find that you have to say baloney very carefully because it sounds <laughs> it's not part of a sandwich. It's uh, below, below the knee. The knee. Um, and, and in this process for you, you know, you have had to go through multiple iterations of your prosthetic, correct? Uh, several. Yeah. I mean, at first I rode what I thought was like, I just used my walking prosthesis in a, in a quote unquote normal cycling shoe, but not having an ankle meaning like, just imagine riding your bike with a ski boot on like an Alpine ski boot. Like it, it's clunky. It's not very functional. I mean, it is functional. You can do a lot with it. However, you don't want to walk very far. You don't want to bike very far with your ski boots on, right? Especially if one ski boot on and one ski boot off, like you want to have some symmetrical movement. Um, so I've actually had some, you know, I thought I was going to have to give up cycling because I had so much low back pain and I thought I'd messed up my hips. And that's what drove me to physical therapy school. So I've even earned my doctorate after, you know, having machines breathe, breathe for me and people rotor rooting around in my brain. Um, you know, people thought I was going to wake up and be not so smart. Um, just, I mean, just goes to show I'm just trying to people li listening. It's like, I'm a five foot five with shoes on, um, not particularly physically intimidating. I smile a lot. Um, like we can accomplish great things, like things that we didn't think we were capable of doing. You can earn your doctorate. You can do, you can ride your bike 200 miles if you want to. And if you don't want to, don't do it. I'm not trying to guilt you into doing what you don't want to do. But I think going back to that prosthetic part, it's like, yes, I have had a number of iterations because that stubbornness to find a solution that enables you to be most functional. So my buddy is, um, he makes saddles, makes a really elegant, graceful, comfortable, fairly competitive saddles. Um, and he saw that my prosthesis wasn't effective enough. He's like, I can fix that. So we just went in the garage and he made me a leg. And then for the games, my prosthetist took that, those measurements and made, um, an arrow leg for me. So it's pretty sick. Um, it is UCI legal. It makes the three to one ratio. It's not a foil. It is. Um, it's pretty wild to have a, um, a prosthetic leg that you put on with a UCI stamp on it. That's amazing. I didn't even yeah. I didn't even think about it from that. So for folks out there who don't understand what the UCI is and, and what that means is, is, is there's a governing body that dictates uh, the weight the aerodynamics and the physicalities of bicycle components, whether um, they fit or not. And that's something that's seen in the Tour de France. That's something that's seen everywhere, right, Meg? Yeah, they even regulate kits, like the, the outfits people wear. You sock heights, sock heights. That are so height. Can you wear gloves when you race in the velodrome or not? Can you wear shoe covers or not? It is asinine. It's like, time. it's like having your OCD mom tell you what you can wear and do before you go to school. It's super, yeah. super intense. Um, and it affects all components of cycling across all levels. Um, and they, they fine you or will disqualify you if those regulations are not followed. For instance, during the Tour de France or the Tour de la Femme this past year, yeah. the winner of the Tour de la Femme was fined for her sock height being too high. Yes. And it's ridiculous. It doesn't make you go any faster. I don't know why they do it, but they have some rules and regs. I mean, I understand yes. some of it for safety, meaning weights of bikes being too light and becoming flimsy, oh, yeah. but you know, the sock height and other things, just ridiculous. But so- And they all, they find you in Swiss francs as well. Yeah, which it is, is like- Weirder, God. Yeah. So weird. So <clears throat> you have an aerodynamic- Prosthesis. Yeah, yeah. You you yeah, I mean, 
Do you, I haven't seen that one, have I? No, you haven't because it is, it's so specific. I only ride it on the road and velodrome because, um, nowadays I, I race like predominant race, ride, participate, love train, um, predominantly mountain and gravel events. I like being off the road. Um, and that requires at times walking or even really road riding. Like if you want to go to, for a coffee shop, stay off, stop or something like that. My arrow leg has no walking surface. I had to have to walk directly on the cleat that clips directly into the pedal. So it's kind of like ice skating. It's not very functional. It is meant to just ride a bike and ride it quickly. Um, or as fast as, or as slowly as you want. I mean, it doesn't always have to be about speed. Um, but the other, the foot that I predominantly use has a surface that I can walk on. So I'll, I'll, th I'll jump in a cycle cross race. Yeah. I've got to run up, got stairs. I'll do it. I'll shoulder a bike or mountain biking. You know? Yeah. I do it all, but I, having a walking surface means that I, I usually use a different foot. So if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but a few years ago you went climbing with a group. Oh yeah. You... Yeah. So there, there's an organization called the range of motion project and it started about 15, 16 years ago. And it provides prostheses to individuals in developing countries because you're only like, even in the U S no matter where you are, um, you are only as, as a prosthetic user, only as limited as your access to prostheses. Like if I didn't have a prosthesis, I, I would need to rely on a wheelchair or crutches, but because I have a prosthesis, I'm able to ride my bike, not just ride my bike. Okay. Like, let's just talk about truly like, that means I can walk to the bathroom. That means I can walk to the kitchen and I can pick up a plate of food or I can stand next to the stove or I can take my laundry up and down the stairs. Cause when you're on crutches, how do you carry a laundry basket? You know, what you do is you get a laundry bag and then you launch it down the stairs. And then when you're, when it's done, you crawl up the stairs with that bag over your shoulder, like some kind of hobbled Santa Claus. So, I mean, we all find ways to accommodate you, you, everything gets done coming back to it, but I'm um, providing prosthetics. It, this is a really powerful thing. This organization does, and it brings um, able-bodied as well as para-athletes down to Ecuador and we climb some of the higher volcanoes uh, and finishing after our climat climatization hikes we finished by climbing Cotopaxi which is above 19,000 feet it's one of the most beautiful iconic volcanoes right in the um, in the Andes it's phenomenal um, and the number of prosthetic users who get up there is uh, it's incredible and it's a very visual representation of what people can do with access to appropriate medical care. Um, yeah, it's it's a transformative. I've, I've been able to go twice. I'd love to go every year if I could. Um, it's not only transformative for me, but also the images that go out to other, not just in the US, not just in North America, but in other countries, uh, it's just crazy. Like when I walk through Central South America, people come up to me in their wheelchairs or, and often these wheelchairs aren't highly functional and, and they don't have a prosthetic leg. They don't have the, the access that I have. And it's humbling. I mean, we all take everything for granted, right? You can't not, we take our ability to walk for granted. We take our ability, our, your knife skills. I would kill for your, no, I wouldn't kill for your, your knife skills, but like we all, we can't but take I mean, I was chopping onions last night and it's, it called for fine chopping. And I know there's all sorts of techniques, but I just think, man, to be a chef, oh, which goes back to say, I want to say thank you for helping me with some of my, my chefery when I was chefing for the live giant team. Thank you. Oh, no worries. Happy to. Um, yeah. You, you're everywhere. I want you've helped so many organizations and people around the world, um, accomplish their dreams. So it, uh, teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah. At this, I think, you know, I think one of the things that um, I'm really, really excited to share with everybody and and really talk about is how you're working towards changing events um, and access to events for para athletes um, and how and how diligent you've been. And, and we've talked about this not online. I mean, you know, and it's like unanswered phone calls, unanswered emails. 
um, and how hard it really is to get organizers, uh, event organizers, so let me clarify that, um, to really follow through to realize that there is the need and there is the want to participate in, in these events. Um, a World Health Organization study came out last fall that highlighted that 15% of the world's population lives with a permanent physical impairment. And I think the most common physical impairment temporarily is a sprained ankle. I think we can all you know, remember what it's like when you fall off the monkey bars and you sprain your ankle and how limited you are for those that week or longer, but generally we heal. Um, some of us, we don't get to heal, right? Um, my foot will never grow back. My 80 year old grandma thought my foot would grow back. Bless her heart. It sure didn't. I'm not a chameleon. Um, that's crazy to think, right? That's crazy to think that there is that mental thought process that people, oh, my child, my my grandchild's like a starfish. It's going to yeah. grow limb back. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually my nickname. Um, people call me starfish. Um, but yeah, um, a defective starfish, I guess. Um, and so, <laughs> um, but going back to that, it's like so. I, I, I kind of think I have this kind of full circle event. Like when I first was injured twenty years ago, I didn't want anybody to know about my physical impairment. I thought I will always wear pants. My goal was to walk without a limp. My, I also had the goal of returning to the tennis team. Like I just wanted to be quote unquote normal. However, the, I never returned to competitive tennis because I just, I love it. I still, I used to be the tennis professor on campus at our local college and I love it. I still love to play. I just can't compete at the same level. Anyway, that's a side note. What, what what I'm saying is, is that there is so much need. And, and once I recognize that there is parasport and that parasport isn't less than, it is not, it is not less. I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. I think a lot of us, you know, we think, oh, I would never want to be in a wheelchair or I would never like, can't imagine losing my hand. I can't imagine being paralyzed. I can't imagine having a spinal cord injury or a traumatic brain injury. There's so many things that we, we can't imagine or really know how our lives would continue because we haven't lived it. But then once you live it, you go like, oh no, life, it continues. There are hard things. Sometimes it's harder than others. I mean, but our, the human body's resilience and capacity for strength and ability is astounding. That's part of why I got my doctorate in physical therapy. So this is, I think I'm really aptly placed with my athletic credentials, as well as my um, academic credentials to help advocate for, for this space. It's basically, I'm advocating for basically another age group, right? Like in all of these events, they often have age groups and we don't expect the 40 to 50 age group to compete head to head against the 20 to 30 or the 30 to 40 or the 40, 50. We, you know, people are age groupers. And then there are some people who have the ability to, you know, kind of transcend their age group and some 30 year old is not, is going to lose to a 50 year old. Usually that's training and dedication and some other genetics. So that's just kind of fact of life. And there's some pro level athletes too. However, there are people who use hand cycles, whether that be push rim for marathons or um, geared hand cycles for um, biking, you know, a, a kind of paracycling. It's unreasonable to expect somebody who uses a hand cycle to compete against somebody who uses an upright cycle, right? That's, that's kind of like, I'm basically saying, let's create an age group for this fundamentally, like this, these for para-athletes like myself, because there is a lot of social value and personal value because everybody knows somebody who has a physical impairment, whether they use a cane, whether they use a wheelchair, whether they use a guide dog or a, a cane for visibility, because biking is, very accessible for people. Um, there's tricycles, whether they're upright sitting on top tricycles or recumbent tricycles that people pedal with their hands or with their feet. There are tandem bicycles for people with visual impairments. There are two-wheeled bikes that you can have adaptations for hand grip control or um, other adaptations for you know, lower extremity impairments. I've ridden bikes with people who have no arms and no feet. Huh. I've met I've ridden bikes people who only have one arm and one leg. And their bikes are highly adapted. And let's just go back like Chris, I and you are significantly taller than me. I can't ride your bike, right? Like yep. 
your bike is adapted to you. My bike is adapted to me. Like bikes, bikes are personal. Are, bikes are very personal. That's what I'm saying. And so they're fundamentally like machines, machine wheelchairs are basically wheelchairs that enable us all to go further and farther than our two feet can carry us alone. And I see biking and the bike space as a excellent opportunity for people with physical impairments to explore their physical abilities, just like everybody else. Right. And sometimes it just takes people seeing themselves reflected to realize that they have a space there. Um, and I like that I'm not the only person anymore. So I came to Rebecca's private Idaho and there was somebody from Brazil came. Um, there were full podiums. There were full podiums at Unbound. I was the first uh, challenged. I was the first paracyclist ever to do Unbound, male or female, 200 miles. And now last year there were there were men and women. Were there women? Yeah, I think there were women. Um, and so it's it's growing. There's space, and I'm grateful for the organizers that recognize that. Oh, I mean, it's all business to some extent. Like they're recognizing that there is value to them monetarily as well as socially to include people with physical impairments. Um, and I'm not opposed to that. Like I want start lines to represent the general population, right? Like um, now race organizers are recognizing individuals on the gender spectrum, you know, by non-binary or um, gender expansive categories. I recognize that some, some of that terminology continues to evolve to be most accurate. Um, so it's not just male, female, um, non-binary. I think that it also believes there needs to be a space for para-athletes because there, there are in other countries and we're all, we're, we're doing it. So let's pull out the chair. The table's big enough. I mean, it's a giant table at sport. Sport's huge. Let's just pull out that chair. Maybe we have to send an invitation, but they're there. It's a really interesting point you're making because, and the way you just broke it down is so straightforward. It's another age category, right? Like, yeah. let's just put it in basic terms. And and bikes are very personal. They're like, they're customized, whether it be the saddles or the stem length or the height of the bike. Everything is based on the rider. So to be able to open up these um, spaces in events, I mean, for crying out loud, let's just put it into super basics. There is such a thing as called the Paralympics where there is, categories for every sport yeah. so why not make it everyday life in every sport accessible so that those folks can said train and have aspirations to go to the olympics yeah and i'm some people have have chastised me because they, they believe that not every sport has to be an olympic or paralympic sport i agree um the reason i call it para is because it's elegant it's universal it's not american english so that it can go globally because there are people around the globe with physical impairments. Um, and there are, there are, yeah, it's, that's why I'm advocating the use of paracycling in mountain and gravel events. Um, with the um, USA Cycling, which is the US's gover governing body, as well as the um, UCI, which is the international governing body, looking at gravel events and at mountain events. I would just want to make sure that they're they're seeing people with physical impairments. Gravel is, is the fastest growing segment of cycling. Um, people are are seeing that they can do it alone. The, the gravel events aren't necessarily requiring um, require people to be racy. Like if you if you jump into a crit, right? Like a, a crit criterion is usually a one mile circuit. Yeah, you get if you get area. dropped, they pull you. If you get dropped, you get pulled. Your race day is over, or it's miserable. Or even on a typical road race event, let's just say you're a beginner cat four, um, five or something like that. And if you get, aren't able to stay with the lead group, you're riding by yourself for a long day and it's not always as fun. And gravel is more or less meant to be kind of together alone. Like you can be together. Business in the front, party in the back. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful mullet. Um, and it's a cascade of love. And so you can have your pointy end race. You can have your solo time trial. You can have your social group ride. You can make your own adventure. And that's what I find that just like on the road on gravel, you can use a three wheeled bike. You can use a hand cycle. You could use a tandem. You can use 
an upright typical bike like most everyone else is using. And, they'll, and race organizers also make very different distances, whether it be 25, 50, 75, 100, 200. Whereas again, if you go to a road race, it's going to be, you know, 45 miles is what it is across all categories. Yep. And so in a gravel events, again, it is, you know, uh, very accessible um, for anybody's ability, whether you're new to cycling in general, and you're like, man, I've heard of this thing called Unbound and Unbound, formerly Dirty Kanza, um, the the race gets highlighted at 200 miles. That's that was the gold standard. And people think I don't want to ride 200 miles. They don't rec didn't know that if you go to the race organization or a race website, there are like four other distances to choose from. Same with that Rebecca's private Idaho. You don't have to do a hundred miles at elevation around, um, you know, beautiful Sun Valley Ketchum. It's really not a bad way to spend a hundred miles. Well, um, I, think, I think the thing is, is what, 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 what gravel racing has given is a safe place for people to ride yep. instead of being on the road. You're yep. less, you're less apt to be buzzed by vehicles. You're, oh. Um, in an environment that is nature and it yeah. really allows you to feel comfortable yeah. and safe. Right. Yeah. And yes, sometimes you may be on the pavement or you may have to yeah. take a, a, a road to get to said gravel road, but ultimately it's, it's really about that freedom and that sense of adventure. Yeah. And I love that, you know, you're bringing the voice of the para community to these organizations and making them realize that everybody wants to come out and play. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, what the hell is the point of having a sandbox if you're not going to let everybody come and play in it? Right. I. It's just, it's, it, it's selfish. And yeah. to me, it, it, it should be a freedom for everybody to come and play. That sense of adventure, everybody has that. Whether it be such a simple thing as I want to, you know, get and see this beautiful view or I want to, you know, ride to this lake and, 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 and you know, sit in the hot spring for a little bit and then ride back. It, it doesn't have to be, it's not a race for everyone. And I think it's the participation, it's being around people that are like-minded and wanting to have a sense of adventure. And I think that that's the most important thing sure. that you're yeah. making everybody recognize. I think like, kind of going back to before, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. And I think as like a competitive tennis player, I was like, man, this is the only way to play tennis. And I, I think I kind of poo-pooed I'll be honest, like probably wheelchair tennis. I was like, that can't be nearly as fun or as meaningful or no, it's every bit as competitive. It's every bit as fun. It's just how some people enjoy the sport and it's not wrong. It's not less. And then when you come to cycling, it, it it's the same thing. Like it's the same thing or, or parasailing that people can are, or track and field events. It just, it, the list goes on and on and on. And I, it's not until people are con not confronted as a strong word, but like shown what they don't know um, and, and given the opportunity to broaden their perspectives, they kind of go like, oh yeah. Cause I don't know any race organizer that is necessarily like super exclusive, like, or discriminatory. Like they're saying, no, we don't want people. We want just these people at our event, right? They're not saying like, it's not always a, like an elitist sandbox like they think that their sandbox is open and inclusive they don't know that their sandbox is not leaving space that they've put a barrier between their friends the people that they thought were their friends and then once you say like oh no actually and they go oh oh so that's also the space that I'm feeling is saying like okay you've got a great sandbox it's like phenomenal but did you know you are inadvertently doing this and to make it what you think it is, these are the steps to do that. And they yeah, go, oh. it's understanding what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, standing yeah, yeah. and looking at it from someone else's perspective. And sometimes yeah. it takes uh, a little voice, a little something, yeah. a little nudge to make you realize that like, you know, somebody else sees it differently. You don't right. see through their eyes. You don't mm -hmm. feel what they feel when they view said event or thing in life. You know, I think it's really interesting because, you know, 
as you know, I, I used to skateboard and I've watched the skateboard community. And now there is a whole slew of rippers out there who are para-athletes. I mean, yeah. it's insane how rad these skaters are. You know, you have skateboarders that are blind. You have double amputees. Um, yeah. You know, Tony Hawk just turned uh, Felipe pro. He's a double amputee. And the guy blows my mind when he skates. It, it's yeah. it's really exciting to see the change, the paradigm change yeah. that's happening in sport that is all inclusive. Oh, it's gosh. awesome. What's you great? know, yeah. when watching people follow their dreams, whether it be to finish an event, to get to said vista, to swim in said hot yeah. you know, water. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really amazing thing to be there and see that for me to see that, yeah. you know, like yeah. you said you were going to do lead boat. Now I want to talk about the power of lead boat and how fucking insane lead boat is one, because there's not a lot of people who can do lead boat, right? Like there's lead boat is a monster for those of you that's Leadville, which is a mountain bike race. And then the next day is Steamboat, which is a gravel race. Now I'll yeah. let Meg extend on that, but these are two monster events. And when I say monster, I mean big that are a day apart from each other. So Meg, have yeah. at it. Um, Leadboat was a brainchild. Um, is a, I think it only happened two years. I tried to do it last year. I had a car malfunction. My windshield wipers just went belly up. I couldn't get from Leadville to Steamboat um, safely. So had to pull the plug. Um, Leadville is an iconic mon monument of cycling. It's um, also known as the race across the sky. Leadville is the highest um, occupied town in the US. It's, up, it's above 10,000 feet. The air is very skinny up there. People get altitude sickness just having coffee. Um, and then from there, you bike uh, up to over 12,000 feet um, and down and it's 106 miles. So they kind of sneak in a few extra miles but it's called Leadville 100. Um, and then the next day is Steamboat and there's Steamboat has a number of races. Um, there's like a blue, green, red and a black horse. Um, part of the Leadboat challenge is the black horse. So it's about 150 miles. Um, and I think it was actually 144. So when you add up the two days, I biked 250 miles and steamboat is all above 7,000 feet. So it's technically at elevation as well. And um, I can't remember how many feet of elevation I gained in those two days, but I think it was over 23,000. Um, it's really fun. It's really awful as well. Um, it's considered type two fun, I would say. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to show people that like, if I can do it, you can do it. And that, and it's, again, it's not a guilt thing, but it's like, we all have scars. We all have obstacles, whether they be, you know, personal obstacles, like, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to bring up people's hardships, but like, you know, in 2020, a lot of people lost their jobs and had difficulties that way, whether that's emotionally, financially, time-wise, uh, a change in your family or a change in your own health. Um, like, losing a leg and using a prosthesis is a very visual representation uh, of, of, of loss and overcoming obstacles. And if I can do 250 miles and not a lot of oxygen and not a lot of sleep, um, it not only shows other people, selfishly me too, that like, I'm not, I'm not disabled, right? It's, I mean, it's proving to myself how able I am. Like I didn't know if I could finish Leadville, but I can't. So I know I can do that and I know I can do more. I think we all tell ourselves what we can or can't do. And as soon as you tell yourself you can't, you won't. So I just try to keep moving forward. Keep like, I did not ride my bike all of Leadboat. I rode all of Leadville. I, I climbed, made every climb except for the last bit up Columbine where everybody was walking. And that's a side note. Um, at Lead, uh, at Steamboat, like, my buns were quite tender. So I literally just had to walk. So I probably walked five miles of Leadville on my little itty bitty prosthetic leg because I just couldn't sit on my bike anymore. But I never stopped. I never stopped. 
and it's just shows myself that what I can accomplish if I just don't stop and it's whether limitless. that be making space for people, please. Yeah. It's limitless. It's limitless. Yeah. You just keep you moving know, forward. Your, your, your amputation doesn't define you. And that's, no, the, it doesn't. and I yeah. think that's, you know, you, Meg, you have always been the positive. Thanks, Chris. Um, I've been really lucky to have people around me who have lifted me up. Like last winter, I uh, went two winters ago, actually, I was uh, bedridden. I had blood clots in my um, my little leg. Side so note, like I don't, I hate, 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 hate. I, there's a few things I hate, but I really hate the word stump because that does not define me. My leg doesn't define me. Like I hate, please never use that word with anybody. Like if you ask me about how, how's your leg doing? I know what you're talking about. If you say your right leg, I have a right foot. I get it. If you say, how's your left foot? I get it. Like we have to be so, I've, I hate it when people. This is actually really important, Meg. And I think yeah. this is super, super important that you yeah. say this and like tell yeah. people what is right and what is yeah. What is comfortable, so just, what is uncomfortable? Because to be honest, there's a lot of folks out there who don't know what to say and don't know course. what to do and they're scared. Yeah. And they oh, don't yeah. offend um, or, 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 or disrespect, right. but they just don't know. Right. I mean, if you meet somebody who uses a wheelchair, you say like, how are you doing today? Like, I mean, if you, they're just a person. You don't have to be like, how's your back today? Or like, you know, somebody who, or, or I'll just speak to me, right? Like, so I, I use a prosthetic leg. Um, I'll have people ask me like, how's your stump? And I'm going like, it is such a gut-wrenching word for me because a stump is something like on a tree, you cut a tree off. There's a tree stump. It's Christmas season, right? We're going to get our Christmas tree. We're going to leave a stump on the ground. That stump is dead, dying, and no longer functional. That doesn't define me. That's not who I am. I am alive. I am vibrant. I am dynamic. I can be sad too. I can be happy. I can be, oh, I can be angry and ornery and stubborn and all the things, <laughs> but I'm not dead. I'm not. Nope. Um, and so I prefer if people like talk to me, like if somebody doesn't have their, you know, if somebody breaks their arm, you know, they're in a cast, he's like, how's your arm today? They're probably going to talk about the arm that's injured, right? Because that's the topic of conversation. If you, um, and if they don't want to talk about it, guess what? They don't have to just like, it is not a, their, their arm in a sling, their arm in a cast is not a coffee table discussion that is inviting your question. My prosthetic leg is not inviting your discussion. Um, I get, uh, it's pretty common. So I, I, when I go through airports, I always wear shorts because I get extra TSA screening. I get padded down every single time I fly. Um, and I can tell you the Germans are very thorough in their pat downs. Anyway, so um, I, I wish they would like <laughs> provide me, like, buy me a streusel first, please. Um, but uh, so when um, I wear shorts, like people in the airport don't, you know, they just feel like they get to talk to me. And when I say like, I don't want to talk about it, sometimes people take it personally. The thing is, is that like my physical impairment is like I said, not a coffee table discussion book. It's not something I just leave out there to have a conversation because what happened to me is very, very similar to maybe what happened to other people. It's asking you to talk about the worst day of their life. 20 years ago, I lost the love of my life. She died in a car accident. I, I lived in that car accident. I have the things like survivor's guilt. Like, why did I live and she died? She was the good one, you know? Um, and I had other things happen. Like I said, I don't have half my abdominal muscles. I got my brain all scrambled. I used to be painfully shy. Now I can't shut up. So you decide. Whether <laughs> I can't picture you shy at all, man. <laughs> <Right? laughs> That's now not I the thing I know. And if you talk to people, like I have a horrible time remembering something. Some things I remember really well, but times, dates, planning, I have no concept. 
even though I, I graduated with honors and with a, a doctorate, I needed extra time when there were tests that required writing because I have a harder time. The, the part of my brain that translates thoughts into like physical words got scrambled. I woke up with a stutter. I couldn't say things. I couldn't look at this computer and be like, you know, it's a, it's a thing. It's got a, a screen. You, you type on it. It plugs in. I couldn't say computer. And, and people will, will say like, I have that same word finding issue. It's not that unique. It's not, it just happened to me a lot more than is what considered quote unquote acceptable or normal. And I've had to spend a lot of time rewiring my brain. The concept of neuroplasticity is about the coolest, deepest, darkest hole you could ever travel in medicine right now is like how you learn and how you relearn stuff. It is fascinating. And then you can be like, Meg, but you're actually really smart. You said you talked to have brain trauma and then you use the word neuroplasticity and then you used to have a doctorate. Like, should you be traveling, like treating people? Yeah, I'm actually really smart, but I still have problems and that's okay. I haven't killed anyone yet and I don't plan to. Physical therapy, pretty benign. Um, anyway, I, I ramble. That's the problem. So let's bring it back. So, um, so let's talk about what, what you've been doing recently, which I think is really, really exciting. You know, you finished Lead Boat this year. You've done numerous events. I've seen you all over. I saw you at Stetna's Pay Dirt in 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 Nevada in uh, Northern California, Nevada area. Um, yeah. We've crossed paths at Sea Otter. You've done Rebecca's Private Idaho. But something that was really really exciting um, was the film that you just oh. focused on. And you know, it's been entered into the Bicycle Film Festival. You've been to Banff. You're now heading off to the next film festival. You inspired a young man to ride. Yeah. You're going to get me choked up here. So um, the, the film um, is called High Road. Um, high, like a elevation high, H-I-G-H, um, if you're so interested in finding it. And it has been included in the international tour for Banff. So if you go to the Banff Film Festival, any any city, any town, any country, um, you'll get to see it. You can also see it on YouTube. Um, it's on Vimeo. You can find it. It's a 12 minutes, I think, is well spent. It highlights the relationship that this young gentleman, Jack, and I have. Jack is 15 now. In the film, he was 14. Um, a few years ago, cancer came into Jack's life. Um, he had is still, in some ways, uh, fighting um, osteosarcoma. He will continue to have that fight for many years. He is uh, cancer-free at this point. He is awesome. Um, osteosarcoma required him to lose part of his right leg. Um, he had a very, very, very cool surgery called a rotation plasty, where they removed his cancerous tumor and bone, which was in his femur thigh bone, and they took his ankle and flipped it 180 degrees and now his ankle is his knee. All right, let's say that again. His ankle That's now crazy. acts. I saw that. Knee. I was just flabbergasted by that. And it, it oh, took me a lot to understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Jack is a ripper. Um, with any injury or any setback in you know, someone's physical health, your prior level of function is the greatest predictor of outcome. So Jack was awesome to start with. And I knew he'd be awesome afterwards. I just knew that he needed some help. Um, I used to play on the tennis team actually with his mom. So I knew his mom for eons. I knew Jack before he was Jack. It's just a little twinkle in the stars. And now um, many years later, it's a privilege to be, be his, his mentor. I don't think a lot of us go into any aspect of our life with the intention of being somebody's mentor or um, a guide. We just kind of live our own lives. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy smokes. Somebody looks up to me again. I'm only five, five again with shoes. So not many people look up to me and Jack is now taller than me. So I still look, I look up to him. Um, and that's very appropriate. Um, he's my hero and he's become my reason in many ways. Cause Jack, before his cancer came into his life, he was a very competitive hockey player after his amputation and his recovery. Like he can skate. Certainly he can play hockey. He just can't compete at the same level that he did prior to his in his surgery. He can't compete with his age-matched peers because they're they have two legs, two ankles. And so um Jack saw that. 
the bike can be a really adaptive tool. And he's seen me take cycling as far as I can. I can. And then I've taken gravel cycling as far as I can. Now I'm beaten at the door to make it better. Um, and really beaten at the door to make it better for him. Cause I'm blazing the trail, but he's going to pave it. He's going to make it better. Um, I want him to have competition. I want him to have a space. I want him to have the opportunity to, to find as much joy and camaraderie and community as we all do in sport. And it just goes back to that. What I, I love to say is that like the bike allows for us to explore and redefine our abilities. Yeah. And uh, so high road people, please go check this out. It's a great, great film. Um, I saw it as soon as Meg announced that it was released and I'm really excited for what this is going to bring to the world, which is vision of opportunity, right? Like open up everybody's eyes to say that nothing is impossible. It really, really shows a great deal of strength on both of your parts. I mean, becoming the mentor is a big, powerful role to step into. And, and inspiring the next generation. And I think Meg, you're doing that every single day, every day. You inspire all of us. So, all right, we're gonna play a game now because we have to. Love the, the, game, the game is pretty straightforward, okay? It's just, a, there's no wrong answer. It's just, you know, what, what you like. Ready? Ready. Red wine, white wine. I don't drink. There you go, problem solved. Coffee, tea coffee latte i i prefer um milk coffee and not coffee milk it's gotta have it's gotta be buried in milk okay continue next one i'm crushing this game this is good <laughs> hamburger hot dog hot dog from wrigley field go cubs <laughs> ketchup mustard mustard stone ground germany gosh mwah, <laughs> I love this. Beef or pork? Beef. I'm from a cattle farm in Canada, and our family motto is eat beef, you bastards. Wow. Wow. That was a new one. <laughs> I've never had that. Okay. Pasta or noodles? Pasta. And if uh, so, guys, I'm originally from Canada, so I say some things kind of funny. We have pasta. We don't have pasta. We have pasta. Yeah, I know. You Canadians always, mm -hmm. always, always. Okay? Why? I don't know. It's just an interesting yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but dually, so I can speak both your languages. Okay. Uh, burrito taco. Burrito. There you go. Um, nigiri or sashimi? Nigiri. Oh, that's a classy one. Man, Chris, you just come up with the good ones. Lobster, crab. Crab. Sea urchin caviar. Never had either. See? I need to come hang out with you, man. Like, I, my, obviously, I'm not as cultured as you. Or not a, uh, I wouldn't I, say that. It's just a question. Chocolate or fruit? Fruit dipped in chocolate. Fruit. Wow. Okay. What fruit? Strawberries. On, gosh, this is too easy. This game, so good. <laughs> okay. Soft serve, dark chocolate. dark chocolate. Okay. Soft serve or ice cream. I had a creamy for the first time this year. Is anyone familiar with this? I'm no, I'm a new Englander. I know creamies. Okay. So I am a big fan of the creamy. So I, I, it sounds disgusting, right? Like to anyone outside of new England, you're like, let's go for a creamy. You're like, come again. Um, but it's basically like soft serve on crack. And so I choose 